Welcome to The Interview, a Bailiwick Express podcast. I'm Matthew Leach, and this week I spoke to Deputy Lindsay de Sommeray about her committee's recently released electricity strategy. In it, the Committee for the Environment and Infrastructure recommend that Guernsey pursues a new interconnector with France while developing solar and wind power to meet our increasing needs for electricity. She says the response to her strategy has been positive so far, but it'll now need political will to get the wheels turning. <laughs> so I'm here today with Deputy Lindsay de Somray, the President of the Committee for the Environment and Infrastructure. Thank you very much for coming in to Thanks see us. Thanks for having me. Um, I, two, two times in two days now, saw you yesterday <laughs> as well, for a, for, a, for a briefing on all of this. Um, so we're here to talk about the electricity strategy, the island's electricity strategy that has recently, the policy letter that was published by your committee. Um, we've had some responses from Guernsey Electricity and Chamber of Commerce, kind of responses to, to the strategy itself. I mean, it's been a day. How do you think it's been received? Uh, I'm feeling quite um, pleased, actually. It seems to have landed and been received very positively so far, obviously, uh, it's a very long and detailed document and people will need time to go through it and absorb it and look at some of the detail and get their heads around it. Um, but so far the people that have managed to read it have, um, have you know, been very positive about it. Well, certainly the, the ones that have got in touch with me to tell me anyway. <laughs> um, I, having read through the whole thing now a couple of times, we've run some stories on it. I mean... I personally think it's a great piece of work, and I think the the, the pathway that has been prioritised by the committee is makes absolute sense in the kind of climate that we're in. I mean, how do you feel about it? Are you quite um, proud of the work that's been done to curate it? Yeah, I'm I'm particularly proud of the way in which the work was done because it was a very iterative and consultation-led piece of work. We didn't just lock ourselves away in a room and appear, you know, with a, a, our thoughts on a bit of paper. Uh, it was very iterative. We went, we worked very closely with uh, a group that we call the Energy Partnership in particular. Uh, and the Energy Partnership is a group of energy industry um, representatives, basically stakeholders. And so they are all experts in their field. And it's not just electricity, I should, uh, I should stress, you know, it is the energy sector more generally. But of course, even, you know, organizations that we might traditionally associate with hydrocarbons are themselves on that energy transition so they're really important players in this um, so we work very closely with the energy partnership uh, we had some really um, good quality subject matter expertise from uh, uh, Siemens and PwC in their respective fields um, and when we got feedback from the energy partnership from the business sector from political colleagues we took that feedback very seriously and responded to it. So that is how we ended up with the proposals that we've got. We also had a steering group, which was a, a really important part of the process, and that was um, ensured for quite a lot of cross-committee coverage, I suppose, if you like. We had um, Deputy, uh, myself and Deputy Haskins, uh, also Deputy Latoc and Deputy Mokes. So between us, we cover quite a lot of committees. Um, and we also had Mr Jeremy Thompson, who was for many years the chair of the Guernsey Renewable Energy Team. Um, and he was also on the steering group. So um, 
I was confident in the process because I knew that we'd left no stone unturned and we really did start from a basis of saying we are not going to assume anything. All suggestions are on the table, even ones that, you know, might, some people might have dismissed as, you know, really out there or silly or whatever. We, we left no stone unturned. We really wanted to make sure that we had considered all the, all the options and all of the scenarios and done it properly. And we were very careful to make sure that no preconceptions on the best solutions, you know, influenced uh, the work. And so um, we ended up, just a quick refresher, because I know everyone kind of knows mm. this now, Pathway D is the kind of uh, preferred option out of the ones that have been put forward. Um, just quickly retell us what that is. Okay, so it is in terms of the supply, uh, obviously the strategy is a little bit more all-encompassing. It, it looks at the supply, the demand and the market structure. Uh, but in terms of the supply pathway, which is Pathway D, um, we are looking at a second interconnector, which would be direct to France and which would have a capacity of 100 megawatts. Uh, we'd be looking at an offshore wind component of 65 megawatts and a solar component of 10 megawatts. So those are the main, uh, obviously all um, in addition to what we've already got, which is an interconnector via Jersey. Um, uh, which has got a capacity of 60 megawatts. So, you know, obviously the background context is we've got a growing population. Our lives are becoming ever more dependent on electricity. It's a very important source of energy. Um, and so we've got growing demand. Uh, we, it's really important that we meet that. We've got to keep, you know, all the equipment at the hospital running. We've got to keep data servers going, uh, let alone the lights and the Wi-Fi and our cookers and our heating and, and, and you know, teenagers gaming and <laughs> all the rest of it. I mean, obviously, uh, electricity is so fundamentally important to our lives and lifestyles. Um, so it's important that we have got a secure and affordable and environmentally responsible strategy to see us through uh, the next few decades. And so that is why we're proposing what we're proposing. But basically, Pathway D is our preferred option because it is the best blend of security and resilience of supply. It's a very flexible pathway. And it also best balances those sometimes competing objectives in terms of security, affordability and environmental impact. So it really does tick more boxes than any other, which is why it's our preferred pathway. And so are questions about um, where we're going to put solar panels and how many turbines is this going to be and what kind of wind farm are we looking at? Is this too premature because this kind of stuff needs to happen next? Absolutely. What we want the states to do is to agree a strategic direction. There is a huge amount of work that needs to happen before we can, uh, you know, even propose any specific um, uh, ideas with the kind of detail that you're talking about. But until we've got that strategic direction, it's very difficult to do that work because technically all options are still on the table. So it, you, you, what you wouldn't want to do is work everything up to the nth degree, you know, work out the, the best possible, um, you know, proposals which would take another however long and then come back and go, da-da, here you go. And someone go, oh, I just think this is fundamentally wrong. We're going the wrong way. You know, we should have looked at this. So it's really important that we get that strategic direction agreed first and then we've got the mandate to go and do the further, much more detailed work to come back with specific proposals later on in the process. And so that, so we're talking there about time frame and how things kind of slot into place. 
I did want to just touch base on the fact that you're hoping that this would go to debate in July. Mm-hmm. Does that feel likely? And even if it does, do you think that's going to, we're going to get round to it? Um, those are both very pertinent questions. I don't know the answer because anything can happen in states meetings. I do think people recognise this as a very important bit of work. Um, I think especially, I mean, you know, politicians are sometimes accused of, of, of living in a bit of a bubble. But I think industry has been very good at communicating how keen they are for the states to make a strategic decision because there are real-world investment business decisions, um, you know, business decisions on significant investments that need to happen. All these energy businesses do need to know what the states thinks that direction is. Um, and those are decisions that need to be made uh, be made sooner rather than later. So I think the industry has been good at um, you know communicating that um, the sooner we can set a strategic direction, the more helpful it's going to be for everyone involved. And obviously, the quicker uh, and more efficiently, hopefully, we can achieve our various targets. So I don't know. I mean, the first challenge is when it is scheduled for business. Yeah. The states has the PNR will propose that the states will agree or amend that, and then. As you allude to, even once it's on an agenda, whether or not we get to it will depend on how much debate there is on other items of business in the same states meeting. So you never can tell, but I'm ever the optimist and I'm hoping that, <laughs> that we will. <laughs> July is set to be quite a bulky one, I, yes, I believe. There's a lot of important stuff, yeah. As well as the Island Games. So it's Yeah, all kicking I'm really off looking forward week. to the Island Games. So excited, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, the headlines that have come out of it, I suppose, have been, you know, the potential, you know, the easy pickings for a conversation for the public have been uh, the potential of a wind farm off the coast of Guernsey. The costs of it um, sound big, but having gone through it all, I mean, these are projected costs up until 2050, and it would surprise me if a power station didn't cost that much in that period of time. Um Speaking briefly on the cost, I mean, this is the one that's going to be relatively the cheaper version, I suppose, than sticking with the status quo. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you're, you're right that all these numbers do sound eye-watering and terrifying <laughs> simultaneously. But you're right to point out that these are costs that stretch over, you know, the best part of three decades we're talking about here. And it's also the total cost. So it's not just the capital expenditure. We're talking about all the operational costs as well. And the other thing that's important to stress is that it's not just you know, no one should assume that these are costs that the states is going to have to fund directly. Some may well be, but others uh, would be costs that Guernsey Electricity uh, would pick up. And there are other ways of funding various different components. Now, decisions on how all these things are funded are decisions that would be made later on in the process when we've done that more detailed work. We've been able to analyse the different options and bring those back for the states to make an informed decision at that time. So I really would sort of warn against making any assumptions about how it's going to be paid, uh, how it's going to be paid for. Um, But there are some sort of general um, principles, I suppose, uh, or guiding factors. Um, One of the recommendations in the strategy is that certainly when it comes to the offshore wind component, it's recommended from a cost optimization point of view, which means best value for money, really, uh, that the 65 megawatts is owned publicly, whether that's directly through the states or through Guernsey Electricity or through some special purpose vehicle that's set up 
uh, for that um, doesn't really matter. But if it is in public ownership, that is going to deliver the best value for money for Guernsey consumers. Now, it doesn't mean to say that it has to be publicly owned because it could be funded, um, you know, it could be owned by uh, a a third party, a private, you know, a a different business. Um, And that's fine. And it may well be that that's actually the most attractive way of doing it. That would mean less expenditure for government or less expenditure of public money in whatever form that takes. But it probably would mean higher costs for consumers because obviously you have to factor in the profit for that other uh, organisation, that other party. So there are some interesting... Um, there are some interesting options, which is why we're not recommending any specific way of doing it. We're saying, just give us a strategic direction. And once we've got that, we'll go away and do that further work and come back with a much more detailed look at how it's best to achieve it. Because it, it sounds like a lot of work, a lot of uh, infrastructure build as well, a lot of even beyond even deciding a direction, it sounds like a lot of work. I mean, after, say... You know, you would hope that your uh, policy letter gets approved, uh, your chosen path gets approved. How long then until a decision comes then back to the States? And then how long after that until we're actually building anything that can push towards this? Well, look, I think the really big components, which are the second interconnector and the offshore wind component, they are really big, really long term infrastructure projects you know assuming that all those gateways are passed through and the states uh, uh, agrees them as and when however we are determined to hit the ground running and so while those things will take time there are some things that we would expect to to be um, up and running much much sooner Uh, you'll have noticed that we've actually got some pretty short-term targets for solar pv so our first target for solar pv is actually in 2025 which is five megawatts and then 10 megawatts by uh, 2027 or 28 sorry i can't remember exactly but quite soon afterwards so that's a very rapid rollout of uh, and you know very much increased on what we've got now so we there are lots of um one of the sections in the policy letter deals with what we call interim measures and that's really sort of policy speak for what do we need to do to get things up and running you know right now what are the things that we need to focus on straight away to make sure that market starts working really dynamically and effectively so although yes there are some aspects which will take a long time and are really big and uh you know long-term infrastructure projects there are other things that i think people will notice changing much more rapidly so we will see sort of I mean, not quite immediate results, but certainly short and medium term uh, progress. And we, when we're talking about the the possibility of having wind turbines, I know in the in the policy letter and during the briefing recently, it has been discussed. This wouldn't necessarily be a solo venture from Guernsey. Um, why is that the case? Is that because it'd be more difficult to get somebody out here just to build one? Well, it's it, a variety of reasons, really, but. What the pathway recommends is the amount of offshore wind that would be optimal to meet our domestic needs. Now, in the grand scheme of things, we're a fairly small community. We don't have the same power requirements as larger regions or jurisdictions. Um, And so, in the grand scheme of things, a 65 megawatt wind farm is pretty small on the international stage. How big is that? (laughs) 
How big? It, it depends that because there are different, there are different sizes. It, so suppose, it depends yeah, on okay. what size have, and and that's exactly part of the you know the the analysis that would would have to go on. But um, but obviously, wind farms are an area of international focus at the moment because we're in this global energy transition. There's a lot of focus, quite rightly on really upping the ante when it comes to renewable power. And so there are a lot of um, investors, uh, you know, commercial backers who are very interested in investing in, uh, in offshore wind because this is the general direction of travel. You know, it's a very important part of our response to climate change, uh, you know, a very important tool to help mitigate it. Um, and so when you are looking at it through a commercial lens, it's quite possible that a larger wind farm would be much more commercially attractive um, than a, a smaller uh, wind farm. So we've been very clear in the policy letter that we shouldn't think about the offshore wind component as a 65 megawatt wind farm. It might be, but it may well be that it's, it makes much more commercial sense to um, have that as part of a much bigger and therefore more commercially attractive uh, wind farm but again those decisions are going to be easier to make once we've been able to do the more detailed analysis and come back with specific proposals but those are exactly the kind of questions that we'll be asking them um so of course i do want to touch base on uh Guernsey electricity clearly a key part of this entire entire policy letter and the conversation at hand um the proposal and the preference i suppose of the committee is to retain uh gel as the main operator of the grid and to promote it going forwards um do you trust our electricity provider in guernsey to be able to uh push forward with these kinds of proposals yeah i mean absolutely i mean we are very lucky actually that our utility our electricity utility is publicly owned um you'll have seen in other jurisdictions other jurisdictions other places well for example france have just renationalized edf uh, because especially in a time when there is a lot of sort of volatility in the energy markets um it, and you do have to um you know you do have a sort of transition to make then i think you've got um more uh you know, you've got more options available to you, I think, potentially. I think we are in a strong position having our utility, our electricity utility in public ownership. Um, so I think that's a real strength. Now, obviously, again, we're quite a small place. It wouldn't make any sense to duplicate our infrastructure assets. No. So it wouldn't make sense to have multiple grids um, you know, it's just going to introduce cost, which is going to push up prices for consumers at the end of the day. So all the, you know, we've always had this advice, which has been reconfirmed through this process, that we are just subscale to offer retail competition. In other words, it wouldn't make sense. It would only be to the detriment of Guernsey consumers were we, were we to allow, you know, multiple electricity companies to vie for, for customers because we just don't have the market scale to support that and make it make sense. It works in other places because they're much bigger and the size of the market can support it. But really in Guernsey, we're too small for that. So what we're recommending is that we don't have any competition in the retail space, but we do have competition in other areas of the market. So there can be competition, which would be a very healthy and very uh, good thing, um, in, for example, uh, locally generated renewables. So they will be able to um, 
uh, basically sell that to Guernsey Electricity and that will feed into what we as consumers use. And is this where regulation, I suppose, comes in again? Um, it's been an interesting process of regulating electricity <laughs> in Guernsey. We had, obviously, the GCRA has led into the SDSB and then this policy letter proposes a kind of um, economic development to pursue new regulatory framework of some kind. Has there been conversations about going back to the authority that we had in the first instance? Well, look, the regulation does actually sit with the Committee for Economic Development, so I wouldn't want to sort of second guess what their views are. But we do, you know, we one of the appendices of the policy letter is, is a very detailed look at um, the, the sort of regulatory environment. I think the important thing to concentrate on is what we want regulation to achieve. So we want regulation to ensure that there is fair and equal access to that energy market. We don't want other energy providers feeling as though they're at a disadvantage to, for example, Guernsey Electricity, or indeed they're at a disadvantage to any other energy providers um, because you know there isn't the environment uh, that gives them the confidence they do have the same sort of access and the same uh, advantages as everyone else. So I think it's really important that the regul- whatever regulatory framework is ultimately decided enables that fair and equal access to the market. Um, consumer protection is also uh, a really important one, obviously, and um, our, our strategy touches on that as well. Um, but I think, you know, the, to balance it all out a little bit, we've got to remember that the more regulation you put in this is a little bit like the push push me pull you situation the more regulation you have typically the sort of less agile your market but also probably more pertinently for many people listening to this the more costly it is um, and those costs inevitably get passed on to consumers so you do have to find the right balance and I think the important thing to focus on is not how you achieve it but well, obviously, that's what economic development will be looking at. But most importantly, what you want to achieve. And I think as long as we can create an environment in which energy providers have got equal, you know, fair and equal access to that market, then it's doing its job. I think that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, good luck with your policy letter. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Interview, a Bailiwick Express podcast. If you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe. You can find us on all social media channels, and if you'd like to keep up to date on all the work The Express team does, please sign up to our daily email by visiting gsy.bailiwickexpress.com.